new phase in the fight over the Kavanaugh nomination gets underway, raising questions of what due process means in the Me Too era. More today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown, the latest on the confirmation of President Trump's high court nominee and placing the proceedings in a different sort of historical context also. The 5G revolution, experts tell us it'll change our lives, but as local officials look at regulation, the feds now say hands off. Tech guru Omar Gayaga with what's at stake. Love those breakfast tacos. Now here comes a twist. People in Mexico City taking to Texas cuisine. All that and a whole lot more today on The Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this September 27th, a Thursday, and something tells me that workplace productivity might take something of a dip today as the eyes of Texas and way beyond turn to a hearing room on Capitol Hill. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Republican senators who've in the past voiced full-throated support for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh are now wavering as more women come forward with allegations against him. Earlier this week, Deborah Ramirez, a student at Yale who was there when Kavanaugh was also there, told The New Yorker that Kavanaugh exposed himself to her at a dormitory party. On Wednesday, in an anonymous letter to Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, a woman reported that her daughter witnessed Judge Kavanaugh drunkenly push her friend, a woman he was dating, up against a wall, quote, very aggressively and sexually after they left a bar one night in 1998, that according to the New York Times. But today's testimony will give Kavanaugh's first accuser a chance to speak. Christine Blasey Ford, a California professor, is telling the Senate Judiciary Committee that Kavanaugh assaulted her when they were both teenagers at a drunken party. In statements prepared for today's hearing, she spoke of the struggle to have to, quote, relive my trauma in front of the entire world. She goes on to say, quoting again, my motivation in coming forward was to provide the facts about how Mr. Kavanaugh's actions have damaged my life so that you can take that into serious consideration as you make your decision about how to proceed. And it is that question of how to proceed that it is most germane at the moment. Judge Kavanaugh is also testifying today and is expected to repeat his adamant denial of the accusations. Joining us now, Lynn Rambo. She is professor of law at Texas A&M. Professor, welcome back to The Standard. Uh, good morning, David. Thank you. You are not only a professor of constitutional law, you also teach evidence law, and you certainly have a lot of experience with trials, including employment discrimination. As you watch what's going on with this hearing, uh, you certainly bring a unique perspective to all this, and I'm wondering what sticks out to you most about it. One of the things that sticks out is that the story that these women are telling don't seem to be the types of stories that one would bring forward if one were fabricating. Mm. If I, or any of us, I think, were making up a story um, the last thing we would do is place another man in the room to have witnessed it because you would want to leave it at he said, she said. We should emphasize, of course, that the rules of uh, evidence here don't strictly apply. This isn't a trial. This is a confirmation hearing. What does that mean when it comes to how the various players present their arguments here? Oh, it means a lot of things. Um, you're absolutely right that there's no evidentiary standard uh, the penalty at the end of this is is simply lack of confirmation. 
the senators are free to exercise their discretion as they see fit with respect to the fitness of Judge Kavanaugh for the court. You know, there's just any number of ways in which this is going to be different from a court proceeding. Yesterday afternoon, uh, Republican Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona gave a speech on the Senate floor in which he said that this hearing process has been unfair both to Christine Blasey Ford and to the nominee himself, Brett Kavanaugh. In your view, is Flake correct in his assessment that neither party can now get a fair hearing because of how this has played itself out in the press? Maybe I'm an idealist, but but I think if you zoom out to 30,000 feet, that's not necessarily true. It is really, really unfortunate, I suppose, that much of the public seems to have, have jumped in a camp one or the other. But by the same token, it is really extraordinary that we're a country where this can even happen. I mean, obviously, we're a country where everyone can speak freely. So that happens. And the cost of that is that um, people prejudge, they rely on information that isn't true, you know, they seize upon rumor. But we are also a country where a single citizen can hear something in the news about a person who is up for the Supreme Court and contact legislators and end up in this position bringing forth a piece of information that is critical to considering whether someone ought to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. That's extraordinary. I want to ask you about this idea of due process, which a lot of people are talking about quite a bit right now. Is there a due process afforded in these hearings as you see it? Because obviously when many people talk about due process, they're thinking of uh, legal justice. This is very much a political matter. Yeah, people have liked to throw the term due process around and they don't, I don't think they really appreciate that under the law, due process is a sliding scale concept that turns a lot on what the sanctions involved will be and how much process is appropriate in light of that particular sanction. Um, this man is not going to jail at the end of this. The most that is going to happen is that he's going to be deprived of this seat. Um, so the the process that he's due is not necessarily the process that that's due in a criminal trial. It does seem odd to me that the idea behind this should be truth telling and that there is such a rush to do it and that there is is not a desire to hear from all the witnesses. Uh, for the life of me, that does not seem to be a justice seeking process. Um, and I find that problematic. Lynn Rambo is a professor of law at Texas A&M School of Law. Professor Rambo, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. You bet, David. Thank you. Many have compared the Kavanaugh confirmation with that of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, but not long before that, there was another Washington appointment held up by sexual harassment allegations, this one involving a Texan. John Tower was four-term U.S. Senator from Houston when, in 1989, George H.W. Bush nominated him for Secretary of Defense. Walter Shapiro remembers this episode well. He's a journalist and lecturer in political science at Yale. He's also a columnist for Roll Call, among other things, where he wrote about the John Tower confirmation process. Walter, thanks for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Always a pleasure. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, how did the confirmation process start out for John Tower? You wrote he kind of looked good on paper. Well, he looked good on paper. He was a defense expert, a hawkish defense expert, a former four-term U.S. senator, uh, and this was a Republican president, the kind, George H.W. Bush, the kind of president who did not arouse 
passionate uh, partisan feeling filling out his cabinet. And in those days, um, a president would get almost total deference hmm. uh, unless um, he named a someone with a reputation as a raging drunk um, as Secretary of Defense during the Cold War. But his confirmation unraveled, Towers' confirmation. What happened? Well, what happened is um, I, met, I said raging drunk for a reason. Um, Tower had major alcohol problems, which his Senate colleagues knew very well. And the, remember, this was still the waning days of the Cold War, where a defense secretary um, is someone who might have to make a life and death decision in five minutes. And the idea that there was a risk that John Tower would be unconscious somewhere was a major factor. Another factor is, as I put it in the column, John Tower had a reputation around Capitol Hill as someone, a woman, unless maybe she's in a wheelchair over the age of 90, would never dare to share an elevator with. That he was a bottom pincher, a skirt chaser. Mm. In the parlance of those days, he was mm -hmm. a womanizer. Mm -hmm. And when he was um, part of a disarmament team in Geneva, um, he had a flagrant affair uh, with, a far, as I believe, a foreign national. All of this came out but the real key thing was that no one liked John Tower. He was a veteran senator who was arrogant, off-putting to his colleagues, and despite all the deference that former uh, senators normally give to former colleagues, mm -hmm. he got none of it. And eventually the, nomina the nomination, as I recall, went down, um, went down on the Senate floor. It, a rare, rare rebuke um, to a president staffing his own cabinet. It, it's interesting in light, certainly, of the allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh that, as you write in a, in a column uh, last year about Tower, there was an, an, an unfortunate sense, you say, evident in 20th century press coverage that sexual accusations were primarily a partisan weapon, uh, more partisan than they are today. What, what do you mean? What really stays with me is that both with Tower and then with uh, the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas right. hearings, uh, sexual harassment became a major issue, and then it sort of vanished into the mists until the Me Too movement. How do you see the Me Too movement as having changed things in, the, in these nomination processes? Well, the thing that everyone in the United States Senate should be aware of is that because of far less severe allegations than were uh, leveled against uh, Judge Kavanaugh, Al Franken um, resigned from the United States Senate last year under intense pressure from Democrats and Republicans. Mitch McConnell said he should go. Um, uh, Chuck Schumer said he should go. So, I mean, that fact, which will, has been unmentioned during these hearings, in fact, Al Franken would have been on the Senate Judiciary hmm. Committee mm -hmm. had he not resigned. It's fascinating uh, to think back on, on, on how things have changed and, and in what direction. Walter Shapiro is a journalist and lecturer in political science at Yale. Walter, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
Let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Thursday. Social media editor Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. I am not here because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me. Those words from Christine Blasey Ford spreading across social media as the nation's attention turns to the hearing into the assault allegations concerning Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. It's all anyone's talking about online. The prepared statement of Ford was available online prior to the hearing start, but the pained at times tearful reading Ford gave of that statement, adding another dimension to her description of attempted rape by Judge Kavanaugh as a team. Uh, lots of people talking about this story on our Facebook page. Lysel McQuillan says this about Dr. Ford's opening statement. Wow, that was powerful to the point with no hyperbole. Meanwhile, L- Lara Douglas calls it a powerful statement as well. She says it's heartbreaking to feel that the white privileged men of the Judicial Committee will only hear her out as a token. Laura predicts, or Lara predicts, that she will not be enough to derail their lifetime appointment of Kavanaugh. Just a couple perspectives that are out there, David, and more folks are chiming in on this one, so I'll be back to talk about that and other stories later in the show. Let us know what you're thinking about all of this. Tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar will be back in 35 with more of your comments. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. Boom times in the oil patch are having ripple effects in banking. A survey by international law firm Haynes & Boone finds oil and gas companies planning to increase borrowing. The Dallas Morning News reports that 78% of companies surveyed are planning to reach out to lenders, and more than one-third will boost their borrowing by 20% or more. Oil from West Texas priced around $45 to $60 per barrel last year, but those prices have shot past the $70 a barrel mark in recent weeks, coming closer to the global benchmark Brent crude, which closed last Tuesday at $82. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorksafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. In case you somehow missed it, it's getting harder than ever for first-time buyers to afford a home in the Lone Star State, which means Texas is increasingly becoming a state of renters. But even there, many Texans are feeling the squeeze the National Low-Income Housing Coalition did the numbers. People on minimum wage would need to work 107 hours a week to afford the average two-bedroom rental. That's, That's the average, and it's a whole lot worse in our major cities. And failure to pay, of course, like other contract violations, can lead to evictions. Audrey McGlinchey of KUT wanted to find out whether this is becoming a bigger issue, and one of the first things she discovered, in Travis County, 12 families a day on average are evicted from their homes. Eviction court is probably the last place anyone wants to be. People sit in wooden chairs or in pews, depending which of five courthouses they're in. There's a family with three kids, an elderly couple, a formerly homeless teenager. None of these people can pay their rent. That's the majority of eviction cases. Let's think about that for a second. Landlords don't typically rent an apartment to someone who can't afford it. That's just not sound business. Evictions you see are stories of crises. The people in this courtroom work at call centers and pizza shops. They earn $8.50 an hour. They have little to no savings. And so when they lose a job or a roommate leaves without notice, they end up here in eviction court. All rise. 
The judge walks in and starts calling the cases, usually some LLC versus a tenant. I'm next. So that's all I could think. This is civil court, so lawyers are rare for both the tenant and the landlord. Typically, a property manager sits at one table in front of the judge, the renter at another. I didn't think, I, I didn't think I'd have a chance. I just thought we were going to be next. Judges ask landlords for the bill. How much does the tenant owe? Then they look to the other table. What's going on? What, how did we get to this point? They listen intently, and they're sympathetic, and sometimes their bailiffs hand out tissues. But at the end of the day, the law doesn't have space for the crisis in this renter's life. And a landlord has bills to pay. In 2017, roughly half of all these cases filed in Travis County courts resulted in evictions. I just knew that he was going to say, I'm sorry, but I have to rule with the plaintiff. And those words kind of just played over and over and over in my head. And, and when that happens, a tenant has five days to move out. Can we just kind of go through the steps um, of, you know, how this all happens? Certainly. So with an eviction, you, somebody defaults under their lease. This is Corey Rogers. He's a real estate lawyer. Let's go with non-payment. Rents due on the first of the month. Starting as soon as the second, uh, the landlord usually then has the right to give them what's called a notice to vacate. Tenants advocates tell me this is when most people leave. Having an eviction filed against you in court, however it turns out, is not good. Landlords have access to this information, and so even a filing against you can make it hard to rent again. With a notice to vacate, you have three days to move. If the tenant doesn't move out, then the, the landlord is eligible to file an eviction. Which makes this all official. You get a court date, and two weeks later, you're in front of a judge, with the landlord telling their side. You know, look, here, here's the lease. They were supposed to pay this amount of rent. They didn't. I gave them a notice to vacate on this day. They didn't vacate. Uh, I'd like a judgment for possession of the property. And the tenant telling theirs. Last year, there were more than 4,400 evictions in Travis County. We're on track to surpass that number this year. Eviction filings have been steadily rising, except for a small dip for the past four years. No one really knows exactly why. Population increases don't really explain it. But here's some ideas I've heard. Wages not keeping up with rising housing costs, low vacancy rates so a landlord can find a new tenant more quickly, and new companies that will handle the entire eviction process, making it easier for a landlord to file one in the first place. Okay, again. Uh, rules are always buckled up. The legal arm of eviction does not end in court. If a tenant doesn't move out in five days, a landlord can file what's called a writ of possession and get a constable to physically remove you. Okay, so what we know about this yeah. Teresa Stewart is a deputy with the Travis County Constable's Office in Southwest Austin. She's going to Sunset Valley to evict someone. This is an older gentleman who is uh, wheelchair bound. Uh, we believe at this point that he has vacated the premises, but you never know. So we are going to go and do what's called a clearing of the apartment or a clearing of the residence. We don't know much about who gets evicted. Courts don't track race, income, or the gender of tenants. But we do know where they're being evicted from, and with that, we can make guesses about who evictions affect the most. 
Half of last year's evictions were filed in just six Travis County zip codes, covering a large portion of North Austin, from Wells Branch to Windsor Hill, and several neighborhoods in Southeast Austin, East Riverside, and Montopolis. Families in these neighborhoods, on average, earn around $44,000 a year, and many of these residents are Hispanic. Even though Stort believes the man she's about to evict has already left, she and another deputy still come to the door, guns drawn. Police! Their intel was right, no one's home, but the place looks like someone just left to run an errand. All the furniture is still there, books, photos, there's a pamphlet on coping with death, and a running fish tank. The deputies rifle through drawers and cabinets, collecting any illegal substances. If there's drugs that, that do belong to the individual, um, we'll leave them inside of the unit and they will have 24 hours in which to come and get their belongings. The rest of the tenant's things, a wicker TV stand, kitchen table chairs, his bed, are carried out to the curb by movers. Again, the tenant will have 24 hours to claim his things. Having a constable force a tenant out, what are called kickouts, doesn't happen in every case. In one part of Travis County, two out of every five evictions required a kickout. Back in the car, we head out to serve someone eviction papers. Deputy Stewart tells me how these usually go. Um, we try, try to ask them what their circumstances are. Are they out of work? Uh, did they just forget to pay their rent? Uh, did they have some sort of specific circumstance that came up? Um, and have they communicated with, with the apartment complex or their landlord? We found more often than not that communication is key. In, in these root of executions, uh, people feel like whenever, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed, they're embarrassed when they can't pay the rent. And um, rather than deal with it, they just keep hoping that they can come up with the rent um, or they can find a way. And you'll, you'll hear that phrase a lot. I just, I was hoping I could find a way. For the Texas Standard, I'm Audrey Malinci. We'll be hearing more from Audrey about folks who've been evicted and the challenges they face on future editions of The Standard. 29 minutes past the hour. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas lawmakers discussed cybersecurity and the state's voting systems yesterday. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports officials say they are working to improve security around the state's voter registration database. Keith Ingram, the director of elections at the Texas Secretary of State's office, told lawmakers that the state's most vulnerable system is its voter registration database. That's mostly because it's connected to the Internet. Voting machines, for example, are not. Ingram says his office takes cybersecurity seriously for the state's voter database because it contains personal information like social security numbers, dates of birth and driver's license information. And he says about 2,200 people have access to it. It is worth repeating that we have had no attempted or successful cyber attacks on the Texas statewide electronic voter registration database. However, our agency is very clear-eyed about the fact that such attacks could be possible, and we are taking every step possible to ensure that such attack would be unsuccessful. Engram says the more than $20 million the federal government recently gave the state for voting security will go a long way in making the database harder to hack. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. 
A brothel featuring robots is planning to open in Houston. But as Houston Public Media's Laurie Johnson reports, the city's mayor is looking for ways to regulate it. A Toronto-based company that provides sex robots to customers has said it plans to open its first U.S. location in Houston. And now Mayor Sylvester Turner says he's looking into what the city's options are. Well, we're looking at distance requirements, just like on other sexual oriented businesses. You can't be close to daycare, schools, churches, synagogues, things of that nature. I want to see whether or not the ordinances that currently exist would apply to these type of businesses. And if not, what changes do we need to make? More than 7,000 people have signed a change.org petition asking the mayor to ban the company. Turner says it's not the type of business he's trying to attract to Houston or personally wants here, but adds he may not legally be able to prevent the business from opening. In Houston, I'm Laurie Johnson. Texas is set to execute its second inmate in two days this evening. 51-year-old Troy Clark was put to death last night by lethal injection for the 1998 kidnapping and murder of Christina Muse and Tyler. The Texas Tribune reports his spouse and four friends were there for his execution, as well as family members of the victim. In his last words, he said, quote, I'm not the one that killed Christina, so whatever makes y'all happy. Tonight, Daniel Acker is scheduled to be executed for the murder of Marquetta George 18 years ago. He would be the 10th person put to death in Texas this year, and six more executions are scheduled before the end of 2018. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on what approved forms of photo ID they can bring to the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour. Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. The next frontier for Internet access is something called 5G, or fifth-generation broadband networking. It's expected to make the Internet faster for consumers. How much faster? Well, some are saying that it could generate new industries, revolutionize interconnectivity and entertainment, and give struggling companies like T-Mobile and Sprint a way to compete with cable companies and bigger wireless carriers. But our tech expert Omar Gayaga says there's a pretty big conflict already between wireless companies and cities, and now the feds are getting into the battle, too. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. What is this 5G all about, and why is it so important? Well, 5G is the the fifth generation of this wireless technology that we've all come to rely on with our cell phones and other devices. So you've got your 4G LTE, which is what most of us have on our current smartphones. Right. 5G would be about a hundred times faster than that, more bandwidth, times more speed uh, for for all of these wireless devices. And and you know it's going to be a while before we see devices that actually take advantage of it. Probably another year or so before they become widespread. But the the uh, wireless companies, your AT and T, your T Mobile's, Verizon's, they're all building out that infrastructure right now and testing it out. And want to get as many of these small transmitters out there as possible. You mentioned the uh, build-outs in, in, in various cities. You look at Dallas, for instance, that's really full steam ahead, it seems. But in the Texas capital city, Austin, not so fast. Uh, why these different approaches? Yeah, it has to do with the city approvals of these small devices that are going to be deployed all over the place. So, uh, you know, uh, my former colleagues at 512 Tech talked to some folks at AT&T who said, you know, in Houston and Dallas, we've got no problems. Everything's moving spe- full speed ahead. But in Austin, there's been delays and there's this talk of fees. So what the FCC has done is say, you know what, we're going to override all that. Cities cannot delay things beyond 90 days for new transmitters or 60 days for ones that are being built on existing structures. So they're trying to uh, basically just move things ahead so that cities don't add additional fees 
or take an undue amount of time to review this stuff. Of course, for the city's point of view, it's, you know, we don't want all these transmitters all over the place without us being able to approve them. We don't want them, you know, on city structures without being able to, you know, take the time to make sure that they're in the right place and that they're not obstructing anything. So there's some kind of push and pull between municipalities and the FCC and the wireless companies. Have you seen any of these transmitters? I mean, are they an eyesore? Is it, uh, is it, is it a headache to, to, to put them uh, in, in place? What, what's, what's the real issue here with these transmitters? I think it's just that it's going to be a, a larger number of them. Uh, with 5G, it's going to be sort of shorter distances, but more devices. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're about, I've heard them described as about the size of, a, of a, they would fit in a pizza box. So they're not, you know, huge devices, but there's going to be a lot more of them. I mean, instead of dozens of them, we're talking about hundreds of them. And, you know, are they going to be on statues? Are they going to be on telephone poles? Uh, you know, they're going to be all over the place. So I think cities are just trying to make sure that they're not, they don't become eyesores or that they don't get in the way of other things that are happening. And but the wireless companies are saying, you know, if you want 5G, this is what needs to happen. We need all these transmitters out there. And the FCC says that they're trying to save the wireless companies two billion dollars uh, in infrastructure costs, which they are then hoping the companies will reinvest into 2.5 billion into, into uh, this infrastructure and spread more into rural areas. That's that's what the FCC says is one of the ultimate goals is to get more of this in wider areas. But it also seems like uh, there's an argument here that echoes the uh, HDTV when that rollout was happening. You know, the FCC was pushing it really hard because they said this will raise all boats. If you, if you, if you put out this uh, high-definition television, you'll sell a whole lot more TVs. It'll be good for the economy. Is that part of the argument here that getting 5G is becoming a kind of economic priority? It is, and that's been the FCC's sell on this, is that, oh, it's going to create these new industries, there's going to be more invested in these in these uh, tech businesses, and, you know, and by the way, we're also going to be spreading more internet to people who can't get it right now. The problem is, you know, for all the talk that the FCC has done on rural internet, we really haven't seen that shift as much as, as we expected. So uh, there's still, you know, it's so problematic to get good internet service in remote areas. So that, that's something that the FCC keeps talking about, but we haven't really seen uh, any evidence that that is really uh, changing. So they're, they're, I think, pinning their hopes on 5G that that's going to solve it because with all this money being pumped into this infrastructure that it's going to spread to those areas. But, you know, that's not uh, a guarantee by any means. Omar Gayaga is our tech expert here on The Standard, and he joins us every Thursday. Omar, uh, thanks so much for speaking with us. Uh, we sure do appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you can find more of my audio at techminutetexas.com. And we'll have a link at texasstandard.org, too. Take care now. I appreciate it, David. Thanks. You heard the debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke? Oh, not that debate, the virtual one. As the Texas Tribune kicks off its annual Tribune Festival in downtown Austin over at texastribune.org, they've constructed a video back and forth between the two candidates facing off in that much-watched U.S. Senate race, combination of two separate interviews, far more issues focused than the usual broadcast debate. There's been speculation that one of the two candidates might be thinking about a 2020 presidential bid. One interesting revelation here, Democratic Congressman O'Rourke pledges to serve out his six-year term if elected. Senator Cruz, not so much, as the Tribune puts it. TexasTribune.org for more. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Do you buy the food or buy the medicine? 
The price of prescription drugs can lead patients of modest means to confront some ugly choices. But a pharmacy in Dallas is trying to help ease the burden for patients in some nine mostly northeast Texas counties. Scott Morgan of KETR has more. Six months ago, St. Vincent de Paul of North Texas soft-launched a pharmacy where you don't have to worry about making life-altering choices, like spend money on food or utilities, or spend money on medicine. On Tuesday, the pharmacy officially opened its doors. Hank Herman, executive director of the pharmacy. People with chronic health conditions who do not have access to medications because they can't afford them are in a really bad place, and we think that Everyone should have the dignity of access to health-sustaining medications. So St. Vincent doesn't charge visitors anything as long as they meet a small set of criteria. You cannot have health insurance coverage. Your household income cannot be more than double the federal poverty line. You need a valid prescription. And at least for now, you need to live in one of nine counties surrounding Dallas. For Northeast Texans, that's good news. Residents of Hunt, Grayson, Kaufman, Collin, Rockwall, and Fannin counties are eligible. But, Herman says, greater reach could be coming. What we would really like is for our prescription medications to be conveniently available to people who need them, regardless of, you know, where in the area they live. St. Vincent already has partnerships with some clinics in the region. Some, like Hope Clinic of McKinney in Collin County, help deliver medicines for those who can't make the hour round trip to Dallas. Herman says the pharmacy is looking to expand its network of partner clinics. And in case you're wondering how a pharmacy can afford to give out free medicines, well, St. Vincent has a few major benefactors, the drug companies. Our pharmacy would not be possible without the generosity of the pharmaceutical companies. They get a bad rap, but uh, I mean, I, I, I can tell you sincerely that, that they really don't want people in need of medications not to have access to them. To date, Herman says pharma companies have given St. Vincent more than $600,000 in medicine to dispense. In Commerce, I'm Scott Morgan. Hey, hey, forget all the light and airy books Clay Smith brought us this summer. It's fall already, and he's back with us to talk about a couple of powerful books with some heavy topics. Clay Smith, as you all may know, is editor-in-chief with Austin-based Kirkus Reviews, and he comes in once a month or so to share what he's been reading. Clay, good to see you again. Good to see you, too. All right, so uh, I'm not sure where to start because these two books are uh, taken as individual works, very Mm -hmm. powerful. Shall we start with uh, Kate Atkinson? Yeah, everybody may remember her from Life After Life, which was a major bestseller uh, in 2013 and 2014. Mm -hmm. This new one is um, titled Transcription, uh, which is a pretty boring title. Um, (laughs) But it's one in the spate of um, novels set in World War II London. Mm -hmm. So last year we had um, The Sparsehold Affair by Alan Hollinghurst. Um, of course, there's Warlight by Michael and Uh So World War II England is really uh, having a moment. Yeah, it does seem say. to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, Several but, movies out, too, that sort yeah. of recall. I mean, uh, a lot of Churchill movies, it seems. Right, yeah. right. So this one is about um, an 18-year-old woman um, in World War II England who is recruited by MI5 to... That's trans- the military intelligence. That's unit. right. Yeah. Um, to transcribe um, overheard conversations of 
British citizens who are fascist sympathizers. Wow. Um, so Mosley, uh, sir, uh, sir, I can't think of his name, uh, his first name, uh, but uh, Mosley, I'm sure, yeah. factors in here. Yeah. So um, she finds that work really boring and also quite terrifying. And But once the war is done, she thinks it's all over. But 10 years after the war, that whole episode in her life comes back to haunt her. How, um, it comes back to haunt her? Yeah. Is it blowing too much to ask how? Because I, I'm, really, Yeah, I can't really tell you uh, how. <laughs> wow, but it haunts her. Yeah. So um, it's a such an engaging novel. It's such a smart novel. Um, our reviewer says it's another beautifully crafted book from an author of great intelligence and empathy. How much of how much of this book uh, focuses on the role of of the protagonist here as a woman? No, I mean that that's a great question, and it is because when you think about World War II England and particularly MI5, you don't think of women, right? Um, but her story is really has pride of place here, and it's wonderful to see a World War II novel from a woman's perspective. This sounds terrific. Do you, would you mind ha- is it passing it over here? Because yeah. it's really, because I'm going to steal it now. And, <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Uh, but Kate Atkinson is the author of this book, which really looks riveting, and I believe it has a little uh, Piccadilly Circus image on the front. Uh, yeah. Kate Atkinson, Transcription. Uh, so what about this other book that you have here? This is... Yes, so this is a totally different book. Uh-huh. Um, we're seeing a lot of hard-hitting um, kind of investigative nonfiction out this fall mm-hmm. that has to do with um, American uh, woes. So yeah, lots of book about racism. Um, this one is by um, a reporter named Shane Bauer, and he, I recognize that name. Well, you probably recognize it because he writes for Mother Jones, mm-hmm. and his article about being an undercover um, security guard at the Wynn Prison, W I N N, in Louisiana. When it ran on Mother's Jones, it just received a ton of attention. The popularity of that article bred this book, American Prison, and the subtitle is A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the business of punishment. And he's writing about for-profit prisons here. Yeah, he worked for the uh, Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, I think is what it's called. That's right. Um, And he was paid $9 an hour. um, And the ratio of inmates to um, guards can be as high as 200 to 1. And so he writes about how his personality changed after being there and sort of the, the really tough conditions. The really interesting backstory to this is that he was also imprisoned in Iran for I two years. I thought that there was some backstory here. He had been, uh, was he accused of being a spy or something? Yeah, and but he was just hiking. He happened to go over the border, and of course he ended up in prison for two years in Iran. And so he's able to compare that experience mm-hmm. with this um, for-profit prison in Louisiana. And the American prison system doesn't come out favorably um, compared to Iran, you so mean, Louisiana's being in right. prison in Louisiana is worse than being in prison. Being in a Iran. prison guard, yeah, in Louisiana. Um, wow. So this is a pretty dark book, but it um, this book has a ton of buzz behind it, and uh, it's a real necessary read. Well, uh, let's let's give listeners another chance to uh, to hear the title and the author again, so that they can uh, check it out for themselves. Uh, the one you were just talking about there. Yeah, this one is American Prison by Shane Bauer. And the one I'm holding in my hands, which I can't wait to check out myself, yeah. as you can tell, is <laughs> Kate Atkinson. Uh, the book is Transcription. She's the author uh, of Life After Life, and Shane right. there is a well-known uh, reporter. 
Clay Smith, of course, is a well-known editor-in-chief for Kirkus Reviews, which is based here in Austin, one of the better-known cities uh, in, in all of the U.S. Clay, That's we're great. having some fun. Thank you so much for coming in with these terrific recommendations. And uh, if people want to know more, uh, what is Kirkus Reviews' website if they wanted to check out more reviews and get more tips? Yeah, we've got a ton there. It's KirkusReviews.com. There we go. Clay, good to talk to you again. We'll, you too. We'll see you next month. Okay, thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Food trucks, they used to be something that Austin seemed to want to call all its own. No more, that's for sure. It's not just the big cities either. I'm looking at you, Alpine, Texas. Small cities are big on food trucks, too. You can get your designer pizza, your falafels, of course. But it seems like breakfast tacos are perhaps the biggest draw of all. But let's step back for a moment. What if you flip that premise around and instead of, say, getting your tacos in Texas... You were getting your Texas barbecue in Mexico. Dan DeFossi calls himself a Chilongo gringo, an American in Mexico City who got so inspired with the food truck culture in Texas, he took that concept all the way to Mexico City. He is the CEO of Chilongo gringo and founder of, uh, what are we going to say here, Dan? How, how do you, uh, maybe you give us the full name and we'll decide whether or not we need to bleep it out. <laughs> uh, we're called Pinche Gringo Barbecue. That's our name. All right. And, now tell uh, me, tell me a little bit about the history of of that uh, of the first word in your name uh, there, because it does have a sort of culinary background. Yeah, sure. The Pinche is a in uh, the Spanish dictionary is the assistant to the chef. Then in the history of the Pinche is that he would make mistakes in the kitchen or steal something or whatever. And so the word Pinche became part of the Mexican vernacular. Um, when you're mad about something or when whatever, you would say, ah, pinche traffic or, mm. or and I so see. we took the word um, and we used it because, you know, sometimes uh, Americans can have some arrogance uh, <laughs> towards Mexico. So people come in, they laugh about the name, they have a big smile and then they open up their hearts uh, to a new type of uh, food that didn't exist in Mexico. Sort of poking a, poking a little fun at, at your at yourself for your own sake, I suppose. Yeah, and we should, right? And we should do that sometimes. It gives us good humility when we make fun of ourselves. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think about the fact that Mexicans are very proud of their barbacoa, for example. Mm. Uh, anyone had any objections to your Texas-style barbecue? Not at all. It's been really surprising. I, of course, I was uh, nervous about that when we started. But, uh, you know, it's great meat. And so people like good meat and they'll come back for more. How do you think, how do you think your brisket compares with Texas brisket cooked here? Now, <laughs> well, I want to be humble in saying that you know the the guys at Franklin, the guys at La Barbecue, and uh, at Mueller's, like we really respect their craft, yeah. and they do things really right. But you know, the pitmasters in those places are Mexican, and when we came the first time to learn about 
barbecue. They were so excited that we were doing this in Mexico City that they let us in and they showed us what they were doing. So we take what we have from our learnings from Texas barbecue. So, you know, a lot of uh, Texans come to our restaurant and they tell us that we're making the grade. But we have a lot more work to do to make it better. Oh, well. Um, uh, You have a rather distinctive crew. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, the folks who are working for you. Uh, We have an amazing group of individuals. We have people that are really committed to presenting American culture, not from what we get from TV and movies, but what they can experience a beautiful part of our culture, which is barbecue. And barbecue is very similar to um, mole, uh, what Mexicans make, because the mole is rich in tradition. It's regional. Your grandmother wakes up at 4 o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and makes the mole with love. And I think barbecue is really similar to that. So when they identify something similar to what we do in the United States, that's barbecue diplomacy. That's people coming together and learning about the similarities in our cultures instead of being reminded of the differences all the time. One of the reasons that some of your crew might have a firsthand knowledge of of how things are here in the States, I gather that a rather large number of your teammates are people who were deported from the United States. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it wasn't something that we decided to do or a strategy for us. When we started hiring a lot of these guys, we started finding out their stories. One gentleman was living in L.A. for 28 years, Mm -hmm. and he had a wife. He had two children that were born in the United States. He was, you know, a good citizen, respected the laws, except one day he went through a red light. Uh, The police pulled him over, and a couple weeks later, he ended up in Mexico City, in a place he hadn't been to in 28 years, I, I, I started crying in the, in the interview because they could be just like you or me coming to Mexico for the first time uh, because it's a strange world for them. And when I had, after that interview, I said, okay, I want to hire as many deportees as I can. So now we have eight people working with very similar stories. Dan DeFossi is the CEO of Grupo Chilango Gringo. We're going to have a link to this story over at texasstandard.org so you can read more about it. Dan, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Thanks so much. And anybody coming down to Mexico City, please come visit us at Pinchy Gringo, and we'll be happy to serve you. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Well, I'm hungry. I don't know about you, Wells. Definitely could yeah. go for some lunch, man. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, much more serious uh, stuff that uh, Texans are talking about on this Thursday. Yeah, definitely, David. Yeah, we're continuing to follow the uh, Kavanaugh hearings and the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. It appears that every trending term on Twitter mm-hmm. is related to the hearing uh, and in, the hearing into these allegations of sexual assault against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. The hashtag Kavanaugh hearings, Chuck Grassley, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, right. the hashtag Believe Survivors, and also this term, Rachel Mitchell. Uh, many people asking who Rachel Mitchell is. Right. Um, she is a sex crimes prosecutor from Arizona who was tasked to do the questioning of Ford by the Republican men on the Judiciary Committee. So what it is is they're turning over their time to this woman who is a a, a former sex crimes prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so each senator has five minutes in the way the the hearing is uh, scripted, and the Republicans ceded all their time to her. And so it's created a kind of awkward stop-start sort of format Mm -hmm. uh, for her questions and really for the hearing overall. Uh, You know, once this sort of conversation uh, gets underway, 
you know, time is called. Uh, so folks, and, and and some people are okay with that. Some folks are taking uh, issue with the questions uh, that uh, Rachel Mitchell is asking uh, via Twitter. And Austin Courtney tweets that everyone should feel extremely uncomfortable that the tactic of Rachel Mitchell seems to be treating this like a trial and that they are prosecuting Dr. Ford. And several people sort of comparing it to like a cross-examination, right. essentially. Uh, similarly, uh, Dr. Shuiti, also in Austin, she says that the Republicans hurt themselves with Rachel Mitchell because they keep interrupting her with the time breaks, uh -huh. and the pattern allows Ford to have a little bit of a breather every five minutes uh, under questioning from the Democratic senators. I think one of the uh, things that the Republican senators are trying to avoid is the optics of yeah. having uh, men questioning, right. uh, questioning her and uh, challenging her version of events, and I guess they... They want this particular um, uh, former prosecutor to, uh, to to do the heavy lifting, in yeah. a sense. So uh, a very strange, you know, the entire, you know, this is just a really, <laughs> we've never seen this sort of thing right. uh, before. It's uh, It was a very visceral, very emotional uh, bit of opening testimony. And also testifying today, Brett Kavanaugh, who has continued to deny all these allegations. Uh, so lots of folks sounding off and just following this very closely. On our Facebook page, Blythe Johnson says that women know how commonplace these types of experiences are and her story rings true to us we need more women in positions of power so we can change the culture of misog misogyny and abuse that is rampant not only in this country but around the world yeah i've been seeing some comments uh, from people who are saying that you know uh, given the way that uh, christine blasey ford has been presenting herself it's uh, i mean it's 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 very hard not to cry in in many mm -hmm. cir uh, circumstances. It's it's very very, very, very difficult to watch. Yes. Uh, we would love to know what you think about this or anything else that's making news on this Thursday. Reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook. Wells Dunbar's looking for you, and he's going to be back here tomorrow. So will I. And we're going to be broadcasting from the Texas Tribune Festival. We certainly hope you can join us. Till then, have a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare. The Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.